Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy B., and I am a compulsive overeater. Hi, you guys. It's such a pleasure to be here, um, sort of. Uh, many of you know that when I speak, I get extremely nervous here, and uh, this is my third time speaking here, and it, it doesn't get better. And um, when I walked in, Michael said to me, Lucy, you're speaking next week. And I was like, that's not funny. And then I realized it was he's totally pulling my leg. Anyway, so um, I just want to thank a lot of people in this room. Um, I want to thank the people who call me and the people who text me and the people who knew me when I first came in and all my OA sponsees and all my OA sisters. Um, just, to, I think, to get the numbers out of the way, uh, the first OA meeting I went to, I think, was in 1989. It was a 7.30 a.m. meeting at Hill Street. Um, I wanted no part of it, but it was suggested to me by a life coach that I go there because he felt that I had an eating disorder. I strongly disagreed with him. Um, so he sent myself and his wife off to go to this meeting. And um, all I can think of it was these people talk about pizza, and now I want to go eat. So obviously this is a program that makes you eat, and I don't want to be in that program. So then... Um, I came back to program in 2006. Uh, I became abstinent in 2008. My abstinence is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack. So clearly I did not get abstinent fast or easily, actually. Um, I came in around a size 12. I'm around between a size 8 and 10 now, but primarily I'm not obsessed with the way I look. Most days I'm not. Most days I'm not. As I was putting on this dress and came down here, I thought, whoa, I look fat. But that's why I'm speaking here. Because I'm probably always going to think that. The difference is now I don't believe it necessarily. I know this is just a thought. It is going through my head. And you know what? Even if I'm fat, it doesn't effing matter. Because all that matters is my relationship with myself and my relationship with my higher power. And I'm not really interested in what weight I should be or what size I should be. I'm just not. I'm just not anymore. So, um... Got abstinent in 2008, and um, at this height, which is about 5'7", I've been a size 16, and I've been a size 6. So I have a, um, a more limited fluctuation. I, I've ranged about, about 40 pounds. So um, on paper, uh, my life was perfect as a child, completely perfect. I was named after my grandmother. She adored me. She would have clothes imported from Paris and Lisbon, and I had little matching outfits with hats and little linings that matched the the hat thing, and, and it was, like, incredible. And um, and I was the oldest child, and everybody adored me, and I was the oldest cousin on both sides. Now, there was a lot of addiction in my family. There was uh, a massive compulsive overeating in my mom's side. Now, I, they're not in recovery, and I have no problem with what, what they do, but there was a lot of that, and there was uh, a fair amount of addiction on, on both sides in terms of alcohol on, on, in both families. So... But my parents were beautiful. They were stunningly beautiful. Um, they were super smart. They went to Ivy League schools. 
and that's what I love about this program. It's a totally democratic program. It does not matter where you come from. I can identify with somebody who is not my race, not my religion, not my socioeconomic type, and I can feel closer to them on this issue than I can to a family member. I mean, literally, my, my husband said, I must say my father, it's such a Freudian slip. My husband said before I left, and, and I always make it, too. It's not funny. It was really good. Anyway, so, anyway, so my husband said before I left, you know, you're not a compulsive overeater. I don't know why you're speaking. And I said, and I said, don't get me started. He said, but when do you compulsively overeat? And I said, I don't want to talk about it. Because the, the truth is, I can't explain to him what do you mean why I compulsively overeat? There's food there. I don't know why I compulsively overeat. You know, I, there's not a why, you know, and I, I don't think, for me, I cannot explain addiction or a compulsion to, to a non-addict. You know, I, I just can't. Um, so anyway, to return to my tragic childhood, um, what, ha- what happened, so I had this perfect family. Now, I have a brother who's only 17 months apart from me. My brother does not have this disease. So I'm going to tell you about what happened, but if I read the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that I have a strange mental obsession, and that mental obsession will drive me. And that has driven me to men. It has driven me with alcohol, with food, with cigarettes, with shopping, uh, with counting how many people are in a meeting and how many people donated how much amount of money. I mean, it, it drives me to do all kinds of strange, strange, strange things. And I have a physical allergy. And so, you know, that's, that's why I'm here and that's why I need to remain here. So my father had all these great gifts that were given to him and he was very successful. And he decided um, in the early 60s that he would move to Southeast Asia and do humanitarian work. And so uh, we all moved with him. And, you know, people said, what did you think? And I was six years old. You weren't going to say, you know, hi, I'm going to stay here and rent an apartment. I mean, you went, you know. So, but I can remember my mother on the plane, and my mom was crying. Well, she was crying because she was moving halfway around the world, you know, and she was leaving her family and her mother and her father. And I remember my grandmother crying at the airport going, oh, my God, I'm never going to see you again, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I remember thinking, why aren't you taking care of me? I'm six. Why are you crying? You know, and that was kind of the way it turned out to be. So, so I get to Southeast Asia, and um, God, weird stuff starts happening. Okay, so I have 42 mosquito bites on one leg. I get rheumatic fever. My parents don't believe I have rheumatic fever. I'm hopping on one leg. I say, uh, I won't go to school. If you don't take me to the doctor, I'm now seven, I won't go to school. So this is a story about somebody who, from the age of six or seven, has said, it's my self-will, nobody's coming, I know what's best for me, I'm going to tell you what's best for me, and I'm going to save my own life. This is a great story if you're not a compulsive overeater. This is not a story about somebody who knew how to or was the least bit interested in surrendering. Because if I surrendered, I would have died. So then at 7 o'clock one morning, I wake up, and there's nobody to talk to. Um, There was no uh, white kids in my class. There was no white kids in my grade. I was the only Caucasian child in about 250 people. There was no kids in my neighborhood. So I spent my life reading books and being in my head and being terrified of being lonely. I was also chronically robbed. I had a um, room in the house 
at the end of the house, and we used to have people come up the hillside or down from the jungle, and they would, we think, we don't know, would blow drugs in the window. It would knock me out. They would come in and rob. And I said to my mother, like, not so long ago, why do you think I was scared of the dark? Why do you think I could never sleep in my own room? She said, I wouldn't sleep there. There are people robbing you all the time. I was like, oh, my God, well, no wonder. So I was terrified of the dark, and this is how I keep myself entertained. I would pull the ticks off my body at night because I was covered in ticks. Because you're in the middle of the jungle and you're covered in ticks. So that was my, so I was tough. I was really tough. So when I came in this room, I didn't want your help. I didn't want to know who you were. I knew what to do. You know, and what I could do was read and develop a huge fantasy life. And my first sort of provoked binge was the age of six. Um, because we were in a British Commonwealth country, we could only get English books. And as many of you may know, English has these amazing high teas. And when I finally went to one, I was so excited. Nobody could believe it. I was like, oh, my God, scones, cream, wow. Except I think the English call them spoons or something. So I apologize if you're English or Susan. <laughs> uh, Susan's looking at me like, what the heck is she saying? Okay, so anyway, I had these great, so the, there was a page and a half of description of this amazing food. And I was supposed to go to this religious ceremony, and you weren't supposed to eat. And I told my mother, I'm starving. i got to eat. Well, it was provoked by this page and a half of food. So the other thing I had was I had this little Betty Crocker cookbook, and it was all cookies. And so I could make my dad cookies when he came home because that made him really happy. And so that's what I would do. And I would keep all my problems to myself, and I would just read my books. At one period of time, nobody spoke to me between the months of November and March at school. And I didn't tell anybody. First of all, I didn't think my parents could do anything about it, and of course they can't. And second of all, I was just used to handling everything on my own from a super early age. And it continued. So my father finishes tour of duty there. We come back to the United States. On the way off, we stop in India. I babysit my brother in India. And let me tell you, we were not staying at the Four Seasons. We were staying at the Salvation Army. Um, I mean, it was it was... It was rough. And then we, my father decides he will have us walk across Pakistan into Afghanistan, which is now where you know where the Taliban lives. So we will walk across Pakistan into Afghanistan. My brother said, Dad, there's somebody pointing a gun at us. My mother's like, really? And there they were. So then we get on a bus in Afghanistan, and we go over the Khyber Pass, at which my parents at this point they decide that I will babysit my brother, even though I have dysentery and we have no bathrooms. So... Just let's just say I really knew how to take care of myself. So I get back to the United States, and now I'm not American. And I don't know how to fit in, and I, I haven't seen TV in three years. I don't know. I just I don't know how to fit in. I don't know what to do. I've been lonely most of my life. I am reading eight books a week because that's the most I could take out from the library. And I would put them in this little order from short to long, and I would read these books. And now I'm starting to develop rituals around food. So after school, we have a corner little uh, candy store, and I have X amount of money, and I get my food. And then I have a girlfriend, and her dad's a great baker, and he'll give us kind of the leftover pastry. So I've got all these, like, food rituals. I can tell you, I won't bore you, but I can tell you exactly what food I served at my 10-year-old birthday party, what cookies and how I arranged them on the plate. I can tell you what my birthday cake was when I was 10 years old. So that, that was all the importance of food in my life. And there was this extraordinary fear of being lonely and being not accepted. And, um, and there was this feeling that I had until really I came into these rooms that there was something fatally wrong with me, that I was fatally flawed, like fatally flawed. And 
And by that, I mean I, I kind of should be dead because somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that with all this stuff that had happened to me, I, I should have been dead. I wasn't sure if I told you about the dog bite. Did I tell you about the dog bite? No, okay. So the dog bite, uh, <laughs> anyway, we have a guard dog down the hill from us in Southeast Asia, and it's guarding, I don't know what, the family. And so I would go play with them, and they would say the dog's around the corner, and I would rush in. Well, the dog wasn't around the corner. The dog comes, rips my back open, rips me open, and um, my mother says, send her back up the hill. And the neighbor says, well, she can't really walk. And they said, well, no, 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 she'll walk up the hill. And they're like, no. And finally, my mother goes, what? Is she hurt? And they're like, yes. So they come down and get me. So that that kind of thing, um, it, it just was traumatic, I think. And, um, and though I'm not interested in the psychology of it, I, I think it just it made me insulate myself tremendously and food was the way to do it and then the other thing I did was tons of ballet so here I am eating my food and reading my books and doing ballet which is of course was perfect and you get to wear a tutu and you wear little shoes and it's perfect and I became a very serious dancer and they seriously started on me about my weight and I got down to about 125 at 5'7", and it wasn't enough. And then from then on, I just took off. Yeah, I just took off. At 17, I started working Kentucky Fried Chicken, so I vowed never to touch the food, so I restricted one whole summer. Plus, I had a super hot guy in my life. Unfortunately, he had another girlfriend, but at least I could do stuff with him. So anyway, so ate nothing at Kentucky Fried Chicken, um, absolutely nothing. My, I made the strawberry pies, and my, I looked like I was bleeding all summer because I had all this strawberry goo on it. So um, that summer I lost another 20, 25 pounds. And then um, finally at the end of the summer I decided to binge, and then I decided I would throw up. Unfortunately, I didn't know how to throw up, so... I heard if you give children mustard, you can throw up. Didn't work for me, except I smelled like a hot dog for four days. So <laughs> anyway, and then, of course, you add all the boys in. And I'm convinced that boys don't like me because I'm not thin enough. So I'm talking to you while I'm holding my stomach in. I don't know how you do that, but I'm doing it. And I'm embarrassed of being intimate with you. I want the lights off. I want nobody to see me. I'm embarrassed of being myself. I am humiliated by being myself. And it's kind of similar to, to what I think of as Bill's story, and I know there's many of you in here who know the big book much better than I, but what I get out of Bill's story is the combination of grandiosity and total demoralization. And it's swinging between high and jazz age and yippee and do this and do that and chattering in millions and between complete incomprehensible demoralization. And that's what I, I swang between. And um, people say things like, oh, you'd be so beautiful if you're pleasantly plump, you're chubby, you're... I spent my life hiding the way I looked. I'm wearing a dress now that at the age of 60 that is shorter than I have ever worn. And that's because of this program. So, you know, it's, and then, of course, I got into a career that demanded that I, that I look good. Of course. And of course I'm going to pick that, right? I'm not going to pick, I don't know what, being a surgical assistant while I'm dressed like in a blue tent. No, I, I'm, 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 going to, I'm going to be in something where everybody's going to take my picture and they're going to say things to me like, you know, we're just trying to make you look thin. We're just trying to make you look thin. And I actually went to one of these situations on Thursday. And you know what? I had a really good time. Because I'm not worried anymore about having to look thin. Do I prefer to look thin? Sure. But I actually don't care because that's not going to make any difference in how I feel. Like none. Like zero. Like I know it won't. So um, 
I go through Turkish healers. I go to all the traditional diet plans. I go to a Hollywood nutritionist who says that the plan isn't working. Of course it's not working because I'm not eating what he's telling me to eat. And I keep saying, I have no idea. This isn't working, you know. So, um, so anyway, he decides to put me on just vegetables and protein. And so I do that and I can't stay out of the bathroom because I can't metabolize the food. In the meantime, I'm spending like $250 in supplements. I mean, I'm doing all kinds of weird crap. Um, the best diet I ever found is become obsessed with a guy, smoke a lot of cigarettes, and then they'll drop some pounds. I mean, that was the best thing. But you, you, you can't count on that. You can't count on it. And, and the other problem is, is that once you get the guy, it goes away. So that's, that's not, but it did work. So um, anyway, so finally I go to a, a therapist who specializes in eating disorders, and she um, is a member, a very long-term member of OA. And she just keeps saying, go to OA, go to OA, go to OA. And she never pushed me. She just kept saying it. She's giving me meeting guides. And I kept, and I'd been in another program, um, 12-step program, very briefly. And so I knew that it worked. So I kept thinking if it was convenient, I would go. But the thing about being in OA is it's never convenient. It's, it's not convenient for me to be here right now. My family wanted me to go to dinner with them, and I said, no way. I mean, it's not, OA, OA is not convenient. Uh, but my eating disorder is much less convenient. And... The amount of mornings, I mean, seriously, I wish I had a dollar for every morning I've woken up and, and absolutely hated myself because I would have an enormous amount of money. And I don't mean hate myself like kind of hate myself. I mean like deep, deep, deep self-loathing to the point where I thought I smelled bad. I thought if I got near a child, I would make them ill. And I'm not kidding. I am not kidding. I thought children were pure and innocent, and I was just a morass of sins. And I grew up uh, in a religion. I went to religious schools, and the religious schools kept telling me I was filled with sins. Now, I have complete respect for that religion, 110%. Just so happened my interpretation was, I can't be perfect, so if I can't be perfect, wait till I show you what I can do. Wait till, wait till I show you. So anyway, I went to this... Um, I went to this eating uh, therapist, and she just kept saying, go into program. And one morning, I had a particularly bad binge, and I think it was on both food and alcohol that day. In fact, I'm sure it was. And so I'm at the beach, and it's a beautiful Southern California day like it was today, and we're all sitting at the beach, and everybody's frolicking in the water, and my husband's surfing or boogie boarding or something, and I'm thinking I am miserable. All I can think of is my stomach is hanging out over my swimsuit or whatever I was wearing. Um, I feel totally hungover on everything. I hate myself. So I called the therapist and she said, you're isolated. And I never knew what that meant. You know, I thought isolated meant you were left in a closet. I, I didn't know what isolated meant. What that meant to me was I couldn't tell anybody about my disease. And all I could think of is I can't tell my sister. My sister's a normie. Hence the doctor's opinion. You know, it was all my parents, the whole kids would, but it's not. My parents had nothing to do with my eating disorder. I'm convinced, nothing. Um, you know, and I'm not a geneticist and not a scientist, so I don't have any idea about that either. So I thought, I can't even tell my sister. She'll just say, well, stop. So I go to this aforementioned 7.30 a.m. Hill Street meeting, and I think, you know, this is great. And so I go back next week, and, you know, I go once, and then I do this for about two years. And um, I go once or twice, and, you know, I get a sponsor who says, oh, just, you know, go to a couple meetings. And then I go to Paris on a huge vacation, and I'm super excited. And, of course, I do what everybody does when they go to Paris is they plan their first meal. And um, not going to the Eiffel Tower, not going to see the museums, I plan my first meal. It never occurs to me that there's meetings in Paris that I can go to. Um, and my first meal, of course, wasn't enough. And so I ended up binging in the hotel room. 
but enough program in me to know what that meant. And so I got on my knees, and I, for one second, I was able to do the third step. I, I asked God to take my will over. And I spent the next two weeks not understanding why I'm having such a horrible time on vacation. Well, because my eating disorder goes with me wherever I am. It doesn't care that I'm in Paris. It doesn't care I took a passport. It doesn't care I'm staying in a nice hotel. It doesn't care I took the channel to London. It's just going to come haunt me wherever I go. And so um, get back to the United States. I take one look at my dog. My dog is covered with red spots, so I rush her to the emergency room. I, I happen to be with a fellow a week later, and the fellow says, make a gratitude list. And I think I read once in Lifeline that a woman whose child just died made a gratitude list. So my dog's dying. I'll make a gratitude list. So I made a gratitude list in the ER. Um, I call up my sponsor. She says, I haven't heard from you for a month. I've moved on. And I'm like, oh, my God. And by the way, she's since made amends to me and we're great friends. And there's like nothing there, nothing bad. So I call up somebody I know in AA. He's like, I know somebody who knows somebody. I get this person on the phone. She's never been home since then, and she says, what meetings do you go to? Come to the meeting and meet me. She says, you know, where do you sit in the meeting? I'm thinking, where do I sit? Well, first of all, I get there 30 minutes late, so I sit in the back of the room. So, I mean, what are you talking about, where do I sit? I sit where I don't have to talk to people. So, um, so I get to the meeting, and, um, and she's been my sponsor ever since. The dog died uh, January 28th, and um, no, the dog died January 29th. I became abstinent on January 28th on three meals a day and one optional snack. And while uh, the uh, veterinarians put my dog down, I laid next to her and I told her, um, thank you, thank you so much. And um, that's how I got abstinent. And I've been with my sponsor ever since. And I want to talk a little bit about what I do. My sponsor said to me, call me every morning at 6.30. I got up at 9.30, but I said yes. Call me up every morning at 6.30. I, I, she terrified me. I had to say yes, and I couldn't go back to where I was. She said, take commitments at all of your meetings. I didn't know what a commitment was, so I said yes. She said, go to five meetings a week. I said yes. She said, how many do you go to now? I said one. Um, so I just kept saying yes because I was too scared not to. So I started uh, getting these commitments, and these commitments are awesome. To this day, I swear I would never go to a meeting unless I had a commitment. I really wouldn't. I'd be like, oh, you know, there was something on YouTube that was super important. Anyway, so I, I would absolutely, I believe in taking commitments. I personally need to go to a lot of meetings. My head is filled with garbage about what's wrong with you, what's wrong with me, what's wrong with my mother, what's wrong with my husband, what's wrong with my sponsees, what's wrong with the world. And I need to take that garbage and dump it out every week. And I don't mean every week. I mean really, really, really every day. And two meetings a day even are are not too much for me. And you know what? I need to see you guys. I need to see you guys. And, you know, there's this old disgusting phrase, you know, when I say to somebody, how are you? And they go, the better for seeing you. And I'm like, ugh. Now somebody says to me, how are you? And I'm like, I'm better now because I've seen you. And I can tell you how bad I feel, or I can tell you how good I feel, or I can tell you what I'm upset about. And I can't, I can't tell everybody that. I can't tell them that, you know, all the stuff I've done with food and all the stuff I've done to hate myself. And, you know, I, I can't say that. So, but I go into a meeting and I see somebody, and I see somebody who's from the same year I got abstinent, 2008, and I think, wow. We have such an amazing connection, and I'm so grateful. Where somebody texts me and says, how are you? I was doing yoga, and God said, you know, they loved you. And I'm like, amazing. And the other thing I've done is really try to develop my relationship with a higher power. And if you're new, do not worry. If you're new, this, do not worry. Just come to meetings. If you're new, the only mistake you can make is to leave. That's literally the only mistake you can make. And if you leave and come back, then you've made no mistake. I mean, seriously, I took me two years to get abstinent. I took so many chips, I can't even begin to tell you, you know. So 
So I got a sponsor and um, and started working the steps. Um, I part of how I work my program is I get on my knees every morning and I, I say some prayers. I read usually two things. Um, I try to meditate. Today I was at the beach, so I tried to meditate. Actually, I ran into a friend of mine who's like, knock, knock, Lucy, are you there? So I didn't say, no, I'm meditating. But um, anyway, so I try to do that every day. I try to constantly remind myself of God's presence. I do that. Believe it or not, through birds. I do it through nature. Like, there's a hummingbird at my feeder. Oh, my God, you know, I ran into somebody I knew in Paris, and they're going to a meeting. Oh, my God, somebody I love just called me when I really needed it. You know, that's how I do all those coincidences. And I think faith is one of those muscles that has to be absolutely, absolutely worked. It's totally like yoga or working out. You know, it's not just like... It's like one great example is I used to be uh, a dancer, and I've gone back to tap dancing, and now I did a tap dance recital with other seven-year-olds this year. I would never have done that. I would absolutely never have done that. But, you know, and I did it with all the teachers, too. And, you know, they showed me those tap steps, and I thought, there's no way I can do that. And by May, I could do it. By June, by June I could do it. And that's the way faith is to me. It, it, it may not work right now. And I have, I have sponsees who are atheists, but they believe in the power of love. I mean, you know, it says in the big book, it's very roomy in this area of faith. I just know for me it's super important to have it and that to know that whatever my job is, my job is to follow God's will to the best of my ability. But you've heard my story. Surrender is not my strength. I'm a, I'm a hard worker, but surrender is not my strength. That's something that, you know, is I have to come here to listen. And for me, this program is one of erosion. And my sponsor always says um, that the steps do slowly with the food, the drugs, the alcohol, the gut, whatever, does super fast. And I think of this program like erosion, you know, and I always think of Yosemite Valley, which to me is a really beautiful, you know, national park here in California. And there's these steep, steep, dramatic, dramatic cliffs. And it took a glacier moving like, what, like one inch, two inches a year. I mean, there's so many things I can do now. My, my career is literally beyond my wildest dreams. And I hated when people said that. When people said beyond my wildest dreams, I said, what? You won the lottery? You, what, what are you talking about, beyond my wildest dreams? You walked on water? I mean, what did you do? So, um, but my career is beyond my wildest dreams. And the, the more, every, as everything gets larger, I need to show up at meetings more and more and more because I need that hierarchy. I need to know that my higher power comes first, I come second. I mean, I need I, I need to know the order of things. And the 12 steps can answer and address pretty much any problem that I have in my life, which I know is a really sweeping statement. I know that seems almost ludicrous if you're new, but really it's helped me with so much. I mean, my, my um, God, again, I was about to say my father. Anyway, my husband and I were about to buy a piece of property um, the other day, and I was really nervous because it's like really a lot of money. And I just thought, you know what? Higher power has this. It'll work out. Or it won't. And whatever will happen will totally be, you know. And I'll do that while I'm eating, too. Um, recently, I've lost a little bit more weight. And I think that's partly because I've stopped thinking every meal should have, like, an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert, you know, and, and <laughs> including breakfast. But anyway, so I, what I've started to do is I've started to actually pray during the meal because it slows me down. And I don't know how it works because I can't put the fork down. That fork is, like, glued to my hand. I'm like, I ordered this Cobb salad. Stand out of my way. So, but if I start praying, I can actually start getting the fork down. And that's not about me losing weight. That's really about me trying to be in alignment with, with God's will. I mean, I had resentments against my husband's family for 25 years. And I have to tell you, I saw him at Thanksgiving, and it was great. 
It was great. And that has nothing to do with me. And when I mean nothing, I mean zero. Because when I was waking up in self-loathing, I was thinking about how much I hated other people and hate and hated them, too. So um, if you're new, I want to say welcome. Um, congratulations to all the chip takers. It's really exciting to see you take the chips. Um, thank you to my sponsees, my OA sisters. Thank you to Michael. And um, keep coming back. And thank you so much for the incredible uh, pleasure and privilege of being allowed to speak here. Thanks again. Um, are there any questions? Um, the question is, what happened, it's a wonderful question, thank you, what happened to shift the negative thinking in my head? And the answer is all of the above. Yes, God lifted it. I asked God to remove the defect of low self-esteem and the defect of self-sabotage and negative thinking. And that I started doing very recently um, because I kind of didn't do that in my first path at the, my first path at the seventh step. The other thing that I do is I constantly pray. So when I wake up in the morning and if the negativity is going or I hear the negativity going during the day, I just start to sing the serenity prayer and I say it to drown out those negative thoughts and I say it as long as I have to. And then I'll switch to the third step prayer because I'm just trying to supplant, to substitute any negativity I have with the direction towards God's will. The other thing I did was I worked on my concept of God, which is that God does not create junk. God loves me. God is a constant companion. And that might be hard if you're a newcomer, but if you can think of something you really love, maybe it's a pet, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend, and how you would treat that friend and how you would love that friend. And that's how I combated the negativity. But I still have a lot of it. And I think the real answer to your question is the negativity for me goes away very, very, very slowly, but it does go away and it does get better. I learned he wasn't at fault. The question is, how did program affect my relationship with my husband? And the answer is, I learned he wasn't at fault. I thought my husband was an ass. And, um, and the reason I thought that is because he kept telling me I wasn't present. Well, I've been with him for 25 years. I've only been sober with food seven and a half years. So I can guarantee you, 17 and a half years, I was not present. I can guarantee you. Because if he was between me and a shrimp, I'm not interested in anything you've got to say. I mean, and even now, he said to me, why are we talking about dinner? We just got to the beach and had breakfast. You know, and I, I wasn't, I wanted to do what I knew, and I still do, and it's something I really battle. I wanted to do what I knew how to do as a child. Hole up in a room with a book and some food, and if you want to add a little alcohol in it and a great TV program, all the better. I mean, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. And that's to a certain extent what I, you know, I'll hear myself when my husband comes home go, oh, fill in the blank. Like, darn it, now I can't do what I want to do. I have to talk to somebody else. So I've learned that he's not at fault. I've learned that it can be as pleasant to talk to him and then I, can, I could never rely on anybody else. So I don't have the, you know, program taught me I can rely on you guys. I can call you up for help. I can enjoy you. I can laugh with you. And, and it's taught me that I can do that with him. 
that I can actually sit and be interested in what he's saying, you know? I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but be interested in what he's saying and listen to what he's saying and care about what he's saying. And so I think it's affected my relationship with him enormously. I've also learned to pause and say things like, you might be right, or, oh, really? Uh, you know, or, um, you know, you're always, you're always right. You're always right. You know, and, and, and I've learned to apologize, you know, to do that tenth step, continue to take personal inventory. When you were wrong, promptly admitted it. So I don't know if he noticed it, but, but I noticed it. And it's made me rely on him more, and it's made me feel closer to him, and it's also made me realize how much more special he is. Nothing. The question is, um, at first I came into program and wanted nothing to do any but with anybody, and how did that change from now coming to love people? I took commitments. And so all of a sudden I had to talk to people setting up the chairs and I had to call somebody up and go, do we need newcomers packages? And people say, oh, Lucy, it's so good to see you. And I'd be like, oh, my God, that creepy phrase, we'll love you till you love yourself, is true. You know, and, and, and I had been to 50 years, 40 to 50 years of psychotherapy, and I had not gotten around to self-love. So I moved very, very gradually from don't talk to me to I'm having commitments and I'm enjoying it, to somebody seems happy to see me. My sponsor said call two people a day, so I did that. Um, And then people started saying things like, boy, I I really related when you shared. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm really important. I'm really contributing. I mean, I'm making it. I I felt like I mattered when I never felt as a child like I mattered. I, I felt like I was like an afterthought. So thanks.